It started out when toilet paper was hard to find in the market. Remember that? Then it was hard to get tested, and sometimes it still is. And as the pandemic goes on, there will be unexpected shortages. It is inevitable. The next one could be a vaccine. So what's fair in determining who gets the goods? Hello again, I'm Warren Aldi, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA School of Management. Franklin Shandy has worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers and J.P. Morgan Chase. At UCLA Anderson, he teaches marketing management, and his research includes perceptions of fairness in the marketplace. Professor Franklin Shandy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to the issues created by the pandemic, how did you get started doing this research? So I got my PhD from the University of Chicago, which is, in some circles, it's the free market, you know, capitalist intellectual center of the academic world. And I'm taking these advanced economic classes where we're getting very deep into esoteric theories about how firms should set prices, what they should do strategically in the marketplace when we have supply or demand shocks. I started looking around and, and thinking, there's no conversation here about perceptions of fairness, which, as we all know, can seriously constrain the decision-making of firms in the marketplace. Even if from a purely economic perspective, it makes sense to raise prices because demand has increased, for example. It was really eye-opening to me at the time that we were not talking about the psychology of, of raising prices. We were talking only about the economic rationale for raising prices. And so it sort of piqued my interest in the idea that maybe we should be incorporating some more psychology into our understanding of market forces. And I started just looking around and noticing all kinds of examples in everyday retail stores, for example, raising prices to capture additional demand and people freaking out and getting upset by that. So the co-author of mine back at, at the University of Chicago, we decided we really wanted to unpack that question and understand how we could better fold theories of psychology and fairness into our understanding of marketplace efficiency. Tell us what you've found about consumer perceptions of what is fair and what is not in pricing goods that get scarce. Yeah, so this is particularly timely at the moment, given that we have encountered quite a few goods and services that we are not used to being in short supply, uh, now very much in short supply. My co-author and I, back when we first started thinking about fairness in the marketplace, in these situations where you do have scarce goods and services, in other words, there are, there's more demand than there is supply of something, what do consumers think is the best way to allocate those goods and services? And so, of course, we have, we have many options. We can sell things to the highest bidder. We can allocate things on a first-come, first-serve policy. And our question was, first, do people systematically believe some of these policies are fairer than others? For example, some of us might think lines are fairer than auctions based on how much you're willing to pay. And more importantly, from a psychological perspective, why? So that was essentially the genesis of the research question here. I assume that these things would change according to what it is that's scarce. If you need to replace a kidney, that's one thing. If you need to buy a painting, that's something else. Yeah, so that's actually one of the insights that we had in a new working paper where we essentially show that what matters a great deal for 
perceptions of fairness in terms of how to allocate things, whether they're wants or needs, is how much people believe that preferences for those things vary. So you brought up kidneys, for example. This is an example of, I think, what most of us would call a need as opposed to something more like a painting, which is very clearly a want. And our insight was that people do seem to have a good intuition about the extent to which want or need varies for a particular good or service. So take take kidneys. If you need a kidney, you really need a kidney, right? There's really not that much of a difference among people who need kidneys uh, in terms of their preferences. We can contrast that with something like a painting, which you mentioned earlier. There's a lot of difference in preferences across consumers for, for fine art, right? Some people don't care. Some people are, are really into it. And what we've found in some preliminary studies is that when people don't believe that preferences vary, that is, when everybody needs something, this is a particularly bad time to use something like a market, something like willingness to pay as the basis for allocation. It turns out that consumers want goods and services to go to those who need them the most or want them the most. But if there are no differences in want or need, as is the case for something like organs, then essentially, if you use a market to allocate things, you're going to end up allocating those things to the people who essentially have the most money. And people really don't like that. Well, back to the pandemic, uh, do people think that increasing the price for masks makes sure they're going to go to the people who need them most, even though that would prevent some people from being able to buy them? Yeah, so this is actually one of the more interesting findings that has come out of these newer studies that we've been running in, in light of the COVID pandemic. In general, people don't like the idea that we're going to allocate things to those who spend the most money. But if you can convince consumers that the reason why a price increase has happened is to make sure that, let's say, masks only go to the people who need them the most, then people start to soften some of their resistance to market pricing. In fact, we've run a, a study that shows exactly this, that when a distributor of masks early on in the pandemic raises prices and justifies that price increase by saying that they don't want these masks to go to people who really don't care about them, people who might stockpile them, people who are looking for a second mask, then we're able to reverse what is what is kind of a classic finding in economics or marketing or consumer psychology, where people tend to exhibit a lot of market aversion. We're able to reverse that when we say, wait a minute, if we use a market and allocate something like masks to those who are willing to spend the most money, that in a way can help make sure that we're not going to see stockpiling, that we're not going to see people who don't really need a mask get their hands on one in lieu of somebody else who actually does need it more. And so this, I think, is kind of an interesting finding, like I said, given that it contrasts quite a bit with a lot of the work on, on market aversion in economics. How do you convince people that, in fact, the increase in the price won't prevent people who really need the masks from getting them? Of course, if you are only allocating something based on how much people are willing to pay, that's going to disadvantage people who don't have as much money. But what we find essentially is that it's better than doing nothing. It's better than setting prices too low and risking inefficient allocation to the people who don't actually care. Now, what's interesting is that this whole line of research essentially came from us trying to compare allocation based on willingness to pay in sort of more traditional market settings to something like allocation to those willing to spend the most time waiting in line, as is the case with the first come first serve policy. What we have found in, in a previous paper is 
that in situations where you can allocate things on a first come first serve policy, people think that's actually much, much fairer. And that's kind of interesting because a line essentially requires people to pay a higher price in terms of a different resource, right? If you need to line up at the Apple store at 4 a.m. on the day the new iPhone comes out, you're spending more time. People don't like the idea that Apple would jack up prices to allocate new iPhones. They're okay, though, with Apple stores essentially jacking up the price in terms of time. To your original question, in situations where you can allocate things based on a, a resource that people think is fairer, something like time, that's a way in which firms and policymakers might be able to increase perceptions of fairness, right? Because our time is, at least in theory, distributed a lot more equally than is money. What about time as a resource? And, you know, it's tempting to think, and it is true in some sense, that time moves at the same rate for everybody. And yet, it seems to me, it's more expensive for some people than it is for others. That's also an insight that we tried to drill into, because it turns out that what we find is that the reason why people think lines are fairer than monetary options, than, you know, just allocating based on willingness to pay, is that people think that it's a stronger signal of your preferences when you spend time to acquire something. So for example, if I'm willing to spend two hours waiting in line for a COVID test, for example, and you're only willing to spend 20 minutes waiting in line, you can be pretty confident that I actually want or need that COVID test more than, than you. On the other hand, if I'm willing to spend $200 on a COVID test and you're only willing to spend $20, now it's a little bit less clear who wants or needs this test the most. And as I alluded to earlier, this is because money is a lot more unequally distributed than time. Now, what's interesting is that you can get people to actually also turn their backs on lines when you highlight the fact that actually, even though in theory, we all have the same number of, of hours in a day, some people have a lot more free time than others. Think about the working poor who might have several jobs and not a lot of free time. Or we could also think about somebody who's wealthier, where you can buy time in the form of having people wait in line for you or paying people to do chores. And so when you highlight the fact that time is actually somewhat unequally distributed, what we find is that people then soften their endorsement of lines as a, a fair way to allocate things. Yeah, this gets tricky. Uh, maybe you can only spend 40 minutes in line because uh, you have to get from one job to the next and you've only got uh, 45 minutes to do it. Yeah, exactly. We tend to just sort of default to this idea that first come first serve policy is the gold standard, most fair way that we can allocate things. What we found is that actually, when there are these big discrepancies in the amount of free time that people have, what we find, at least in our studies, is that our participants essentially just throw up their hands and say, we might as well just try to allocate these things randomly, not ask people to spend time, not ask people to spend money, because they're so loosely tied to people's underlying want or need for whatever it is they're 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 waiting for or paying for, that it's actually fairest in those cases just to randomly allocate things. Well, what about other non-monetary resources, if you can really call them resources? For example, athletes were able to get testing when other people couldn't. How do people feel about that? Yeah. So, I mean, you don't, you don't have to look any farther than some of the headlines surrounding the NBA bubble in Florida. There's, of course, a, a massive shortage in testing capacity in Florida. And yet inside the NBA bubble, I believe in Orlando, they're able to test everybody every single day. What I would argue is that the resource that serves as the basis for allocation in that situation is essentially social influence or social support. Right? These athletes have a lot more social capital 
than do ordinary human beings like me or you. And so they're able to parlay that into acquisition of, in this case, COVID tests that regular people can't get their hands on. When you ask people, how fair do you think it is to allocate based on who has the most social capital? It turns out this is the least fair resource that people should serve as the basis for allocation. So we actually have some studies showing that that people would rather give things to the highest bidder than give things to the, the people who have the most social capital or who are able to pull the most strings behind the scenes. And again, this, this all comes down to preference signaling, which I mentioned earlier. If I have a lot of social capital and I'm willing to spend it on cutting in line at the Apple store to get the first iPhone, that's not a good signal of how much I really want or need that iPhone. Money is, albeit a weaker signal than time, but it at least is somewhat correlated to how badly you want something. So that's another interesting example, I think, of how we're able to dial down people's market aversion. We suggest that there are actually even less fair resources than money that can serve as a basis for allocation. Well, back to the question of social capital, we allegedly live in a nation of laws where everybody is equal under the law, so I suppose that applies in a general sense as well. But when you talk about the NBA bubble, Uh, And the idea of testing the athletes every day, there's also an enormous amount of money involved because if one of them gets sick and you can't have a game, the uh, people involved lose big bucks. I mean, that's exactly why I think we have this system in place. I mean, not to mention that we can get into some of these less tangible psychological benefits of giving people some live sports to watch on television after you know several months of hiatus. But yeah, there's there's a lot on the line. And it sort of speaks to this even broader question of, well, when do we even want to use these systems like auctions or, or lines in the first place, right? The NBA is able to set up all this testing infrastructure because they're able to pay a lot of money for it. But there are a lot of situations where ordinary people would say, this is not really the kind of thing that we should be using money or time as the basis for allocation. There's actually a stronger, you could call it a norm for allocating something like medical services. We traditionally want to allocate scarce medical resources to those who need them the most, irrespective of how much they're willing to pay or how long they're willing to wait in line. So what I think you're suggesting is actually a broader, more philosophical question of when do we want to allow markets to allocate things in the first place. There are, of course, a lot of things. We talked about organs at the top that people don't think should be subject to market forces in the first place, even though an economist might tell you that it's better for societal welfare or for efficiency in a broader sense. In simpler times, in safer times, perhaps, airlines, hotels, uh, services of that kind uh, routinely charge different prices to different people for the same services. How do people feel about that? So you're talking about price discrimination and people essentially hate that. (laughs) And so for anybody who's played the frequent flyer or loyalty game for airlines or for hotel points, it's unsurprising that these companies have come up with a lot of different ways to sort of circumvent this idea that we are charging different prices for literally the same product, right? This is the, the exact reason why we have so many different zones in our new airplanes these days, right? We have the the regular economy, there's even a a base economy, we have the upgraded economy, a business class, first class, and so on. The reason why companies do that is because now it starts to change what is the underlying product. So people are less apt in these situations to say, well, this is not exactly the same product, 
that's being offered to one customer segment versus another. And so maybe it's okay to charge them a little bit more. Is that better attention from the uh, stewards and stewardesses? Uh, th- that seems fair to people? Well, it seems fair to the extent that it feels like the underlying product or the underlying service is somehow fundamentally different in a way that justifies that difference in price. If every seat on the plane is exactly the same and gets the exact same service, and yet you charge some people more than others, that's ripe for accusations of unfairness, right? It's literally the same product that's being sold for different prices. And so to the extent that you can differentiate those products by, as you mentioned, introducing different levels of service, that can start to help justify this form of price discrimination. What about a a very specific case, which is the surge pricing that Uber uh, uses? Uh, Do people like that or not? Well, what Uber's done a really good job of is is kind of educating people about why it is that they're using surge pricing in the first place. So where you've got rides that are in short supply often, and you know we've all had the experience of not being able to get a ride when we really, really need one. When Uber first introduced surge pricing, as a side note, it's interesting they don't even call it surge pricing anymore. It's just baked into the overall cost. You'll remember there was huge resistance to this. And what we found in a couple of studies that looked at surge pricing in particular, that if you help educate consumers that the reason why these prices are increasing during times of high demand is that they help more efficiently allocate the available rides and drivers, people start to understand that actually this makes a little bit more sense than just a free-for-all where prices are low, but the people who really need the rides the most aren't willing to get them. So Uber's done a nice job, I think, consistent with our theory of fairness and allocation, of helping educate people that the reason why these prices are dynamic is that it helps improve efficiency in allocation. Okay, so we talked about money, we've talked about time. Uh, What about physical labor and the mental energy needed to fill out a form and that sort of thing? Uh, How do people feel about those as important in this whole idea of evaluating their options? We've been talking about how we can use as the basis for allocation a lot of different resources. Money and time are the the most obvious. Social capital is is another resource. And as you you mentioned now, there are a lot of situations where we allocate things to people who spend resources like physical and mental effort. So think about any time you've ever filled out a form to qualify for receipt of something. That's essentially allocating something based on your willingness to spend mental effort. A lot of times we're we're asking people to travel across town to sign up for some government program. That's essentially allocating based on people's willingness to physically get up and exert physical energy in order to qualify for whatever it is they're applying for. It turns out that these kinds of policies are perceived as fairer than something like allocating to those willing to spend the most money. But as I mentioned earlier, time is sort of the gold standard. People seem to prefer at least uh, first-come-first-serve policies much more than these other policies that require spending other resources. And this is in large part because time is just its something we're all very familiar with. And it's something we all have in theory in equal supply. Uh, this is not the case for physical energy or your mental ability. That's why those resources are not perceived as fair as allocating on the basis of time, but they're perceived as more fair than allocating on the basis of even more unequal resources like money or social influence. When we talk about fairness, are we talking about economics or are we talking about morality or are we talking about both? And is there a uh, kind of conflict between the values involved? 
Yeah, so this actually is essentially where all of this research started. For a long time in classical economic theory, there is essentially no room for perceptions of fairness. As long as demand increases and supply doesn't, that means firms should raise prices. This is sort of an economics 101 principle. But what some psychologists in the 80s actually started to note was that these perceptions of fairness can actually be pretty serious constraint on profit taking in the marketplace. So the, the classic example from sort of the seminal paper on the topic in the 80s was the situation where a hardware store had raised prices of snow shovels after a big snowstorm. Again, from a purely economic perspective, from a supply and demand perspective, this is totally sensible. Supply has not changed. We've got this huge demand shock where demand has increased due to a snowstorm. And so the reasonable thing for any profit maximizing firm to do is to raise prices. And yet people are really, really upset by the idea that you would take advantage of something like a snowstorm to raise prices. Now, the whole reason why we started getting into this idea of comparing resources as a basis for allocation is because in this exact same scenario where you have a, a large snowstorm rolling into town, that hardware store doesn't have enough supply for those who need snow shovels. People are totally fine with saying, don't raise prices, just allocate those snow shovels on a first come first serve basis, right? So now we're switching from allocating based on willingness to spend money to allocating based on willingness to spend time. And people find that approach much fairer. And this kicked off this whole research program where we were essentially trying to understand why. And part of the reason is that when you spend time to acquire something, that's a stronger signal that you really want that snow shovel than if you're willing to spend a lot of money. We're just about out of time, but uh, we started out with the COVID-19 pandemic and all the new scarcities that it has uh, brought about. And undoubtedly, particularly given the impact on the economy, that's going to be true for some time to come. So these kinds of issues that we're talking about, it seems to me, uh, are going to become more important as time goes on. Right. We're going to have a vaccine, fingers crossed, sooner rather than later. And of course, this is going to be a situation where there, there should be a lot more demand than there is available supply. Is this a situation where we can use a resource-based allocation system like a first-come-first-serve policy or your willingness to spend money? Or is this a situation where maybe the government would step in and say, this kind of scarce good is not the kind that we want to subject to market forces. There are other more important factors that we want to, to serve as the basis for allocation. And we've already started to see some hints of this. The government has, uh, I think, put out some guidelines suggesting that frontline workers, that vulnerable populations, that, of course, healthcare workers, they should be the first in line to get these vaccines. And this is not a situation where we want to ask them to spend money or ask them to spend time. Their willingness to spend those resources are totally uncorrelated with their need for the vaccine. I hope that we are able to recognize that going forward when presumably we get a vaccine in a few months. This is really interesting stuff. The questions that we've talked about are very important, and I'm so glad you've been so clear about them, and I want to thank you very much for being on our program. I much appreciate you having me, and uh, it was uh, a lot of fun. Franklin Chatty, Assistant Professor, Marketing Management uh, Teacher at UCLA Anderson. The podcast is How the World Works. I'm Norman Alney. Join us again. <laughs>